Welcome to Life on Mars, a podcast about technology, entrepreneurship, and innovation. You will listen to stories of the best founders, inventors, experts, and celebrities from all around the galaxy. All right, so welcome to Life on Mars, the Mars Place podcast. And we're happy to have here today Ariel Camus. He's a remote person, basically, coming from Argentina originally, but he's been traveling, living all over the place. Right now, he's stuck close to Barcelona. Welcome, Ariel. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Alex. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here today, and I'm, I'm doing well, even though the circumstances right now are a little crazy in the world, but I, I'm doing quite well. I can't complain. Founder and CEO at Microverse, I'm going to introduce the company. I'll let you introduce the company, but we're just talking about something really interesting because that's something I haven't found in a lot of the development boot camps around. Uh, just scouting all the options are there because I wanted to interview uh, somebody leading a development boot camp. I think this one is pretty close to the culture that we've got, stemming off, you know, from Ruby on Rails. It's it's a remote uh, boot camp. You've got some some you know specific nuances to your culture that I want to talk about. But you mentioned that that you're based on the culture of GitLab. Just one small introduction here. It's funny. We, when we created Marsplace, we're a highly opinionated right? a Rails company. We founded the company based on the, on the principles of Basecamp and Rails. And um, you know, just because we're a very healthy business, I would say this way, the first, one of the first employees we lost was to GitLab, actually. And I remember that when, when he told us, like, hey, we're, I'm leaving the company, and, you know, he was the second person leaving the company, I was like, oh, shoot, we lost another developer, and uh, where to? And he said, like, GitLab. We were like, all right, heads off, motherfucker. That's a really good one. It's like, you have graduated from our space. You're going to perhaps, I wouldn't it's not like I'm, it's a better company, but that means GitLab is pretty strict about the, the, the kind of developers they hire, right? So uh, yeah, maybe yeah. You, can, you can tell why you're based on the uh, culture of GitLab. That would be a good start. Yeah, so let's see. I'll connect this with the story of my career, so like kind of this part that helped me start my career. Um, it was in the year 2013, I think. Um, I spent one month traveling to, to Burundi in East Africa, like tiny, right. tiny country in the, in, in the East of Africa. And I spent one month teaching at the University of Computer Science there. I did this during the transition after the acquisition of my, my previous startup. And I, I always say it was one of the most inspiring experiences of my life because I was meeting people who were so different to me, their realities, their backgrounds, their culture, everything was, you know, fascinating. But at the same time, the, the passion I saw in those people, their eagerness, like to learn, to do things, it was the same that you find everywhere else. But at the same time, it was very frustrating because every time I talked about potential job opportunities and professional growth, I kept hearing things like, I think I can manage the local cyber cafe. And that that disconnection because i was coming from san francisco where you know every company is going nuts and fighting each other to to hire great developers you know seeing this disconnection between all this talent that i was seeing ending up working at a at a you know local cyber cafe and all the opportunities were in other just in a few places around the world this disconnection like drove me crazy so um once i, I got back to to san francisco it was just a, co a coincidence that at a dinner with other entrepreneurs, um, I was introduced to Sid, the founder of GitLab. And we started talking. He told me that he was thinking about the same problem. We started dreaming with building our own like country to help like the best talent in the world go to a place that all he cares is about talent and potential, not about you know um, your current uh, limitations and possibilities and where you were born. This also connected so much with the story of my life where I was born in Argentina and I guess I got lucky that there was this big financial crisis in Argentina. And because of that, my parents decided to immigrate to Spain. And that taught me at a very early age that I was not limited by the place where I had been born. And believe me, I, I have a lot of love for Argentina. And I, my dad is still, still, still there. And anyway, um, when, when I met Sid, we started talking about all of this. And I realized there is a huge opportunity here because he started talking to me about this you know, remote work and how they were building GitLab, how they were growing it, how they were managing to do that 
without competing for the local talent in San Francisco because they were hiring in every single country in the world. And that gave them access to a huge you know, pool of, of talent. And I started thinking, well, this, this remote thing, it's actually here to stay. Just, um, I, I love thinking in terms of like, inevitabilities. And I think uh, at that moment, I thought it is inevitable that the human potential that we have in the world that is being untapped and, and wasted will be connected to opportunities. And globalization is here to stay and remote work will be a trend that will accelerate that, that transition. So when or if we want to connect people with, with those opportunities, it's not going to be enough to just give them the training in software engineering or in design or project, project management. We have to like also train these people on how to work remotely how to work as part of a distributed team, how to work with people from other very different backgrounds and, you know, and, and cultures, religions, accents, time zones. And there's no single place that is teaching this in a way that is accessible in every country in the world. So uh, we started dreaming with, with Sid and he became like a mentor, like teaching me not just, you know, um, not just thinking about this with me, but also showing me and teaching me how he was operating GitLab and all the operating principles or all the rituals or all the things they do that if, unlike you know, companies where everyone is in the same office space, there are a lot of things that they don't need to do, but when you're remote, there's a lot of stuff that you have to do really well from day one. And it, making that part of the culture of microers and the culture of the school for students was a key component of the story of the, of the school. And and coming back to company culture, I think it's it's pretty it's a um, it's a big difference because having collaborated and participated and given talks and even taught and mentored and in in some of the of the most prominent um, development boot camps around, I think that every everybody has got their own playbook, but they sort of can be reduced to you know play hard, work hard, and they have these really intense programs working 10, 12, 14 hours a day for six, seven days a week. And you don't seem to have that. That's one of the things I like. Let's, let's probably, is that part of, did you get that from GitLab or was that a personal belief or is it because you were a developer yourself or did it come from Rails? I don't know. Where did that come? It's, it's, yeah. a, it's an interesting question. Like uh, there is definitely uh, an inevitable, again, component of work hard that, that I think comes from having like type A personalities in the company where everyone has, you know, set themselves to like the highest like standards and everyone, you know, wants more from them. And actually I have to spend a lot of time working on myself and every team member in the company to make sure that they understand that they are not supposed like to be perfect and the most productive people every single day. And that in fact, the best way to be the most productive people is when they are the happiest, when they have the most flexibility, where they have the most, like, you know, balance or balance in, in any way they, they want to consider balance, right? For some people, that is, they have kids in the house right now with this pandemic and they need tons of flexibility. So they might end up working 14 hours a day, but it's not 14 hours of work. It's like an hour here, two hours there, then again, half an hour here. And that's not the best for like deep focus work, which is a topic that we hear a lot about, but it gives them the opportunity to live the life that they need to live, that they, the, the, the life that they want right now. For other people, that can be, you know, we have a developer who loves like waking up at uh, 5 a.m. every morning and he works until like, you know, 2 p.m., 3 p.m. So he has the rest of the day just like enjoy with, with his uh, partner and do the things he loves. So trying to build this culture for flexibility was something really, really important that I got from, from, from GitLab and from a few of the other companies that have been operating remotely and doing things in a, in a different way, like Duist and, and Buffer. Um, I got a lot of inspiration from, from them as well. It's actually, I can see it also in the way you distribute your day, right? Because um, as I said, most of these development uh, boot camps or programs, they're just business people throwing money at a problem, right? They saw an opportunity there and say like, all right, let's milk this cow. Companies need developers. We can sort of train developers, hire some people, mentor them, create developers like in a factory of developers and come up with this, um, you know, army of junior developers to be hired for these companies. And obviously that's a daily business model, but eventually it breaks, right? Um, but I see that and, and most of their days, like if you see their program, most of the days is like cluttered app with meetings and trainings and meetings and trainings. And the only time they've got for developing their own things is like, 
the, the, the last three weeks of the program, which is, I would argue, not the way you learn development, right? The way you learn is actually coding. I'm building, and, I'm building things. It's, I read it somewhere. I don't know to whom belongs this, this, um, this saying that goes like, you know, developers, we need blocks of, of focus to like four hours to work on something. Project managers, all they do is manage stuff. Therefore, they talk to people. So they see their calendar or something. They got to fill with meetings, right? So that's two different approaches. And it seems like yours is way more practical. What other things have you embedded into your program just because you're a developer? What other things are you doing different from other programs? Yeah, so by the way, I guess we should distinguish between the things that are specific of the program for the students and the things that are maybe more specific to the company, right? To the culture of the company. However, they go hand in hand. Uh, They all, you know, they reflect each other because at the end, they both try to like to reflect what we think the future of work should be like. Uh, education is a component of, of, of work, but for us, it's about, you know, how do we imagine the world, the professional world will, will work in the future, and now it's kind of the present already, and then let's make the training of the students mimic that world where, you know, the work is distributed, where there is a lot of professional work, there is a lot of flexibility, there is working with people from many different cultures. So. Uh, part of that is also the need for like doing a lot of deep work and deep work is something that I, I, I guess inherited as a developer because I know I need a lot of like uh, hours in a row to be able to produce good code. But then I started realizing that some of the best business people as well, some of the best, you know, researchers in the world, some of the best athletes, like all kind of, you know, the most proficient people in the world at any kind of industry, they need to do a lot of deep work in whatever shape or form uh, it takes for them. So we translated that to every single aspect of, of the company and the school, where students actually don't have lectures, they have projects, they have responsibilities, they have meetings that they have to attend with their uh, teams, like kind of like scrum teams with their coding partners. There is a lot of uh, the soft skills, the professionalism that we measure on that in a quantitative way for them. But it's always with a lot of flexibility for them to organize their times, uh, their days, their schedules with their you know team members and with their coding partners in the way that it works for them, depending on whether they need to like study more right now or they need to like work on a project, they need to refactor some uh, piece of code, they are waiting for a code review. We give them a lot of that, that flexibility. And it works similarly on the company side where we try to do as much asynchronous work as possible because when like just to give context to this, we have students in 113 countries uh, working collaboratively. Uh, everyone with each other. So we don't have schools in each country. It's just one school with students from all these countries just working together collaboratively. And in on the company side, we have team members in 10 countries as of today. And we have people from you know the West Coast in the US, Latin America, we have people in Europe, we have people in Africa, and we have people in Asia. When you are working across time zones and you're not all in the same office space, one of the most important things that I learned from, from GitLab was, you know, the principle of, of autonomy. If you need every decision to be made by consensus, if you have every decision requiring people from multiple time zones, your capacity to make decisions, to move forward, to, to learn, to iterate, you know, it's decimated and you move really, really slow, which is something you cannot afford at, at a, as a startup. So we had to integrate a lot of that into the way we operate uh, as a company. And this is what you will see, you know, inside the school, a lot of teams that work completely autonomously and some requirements for like, you know, synchronous meetings, but we protect our focus time. For example, for me, I started working at 8 a.m. and until 1.30 p.m., I don't take a single meeting. Like, and I have that blocked on my calendar. It's just time to produce work, to think strategically, to document things. And then in the afternoon, that's when I usually have meetings. But even with meetings, we are very efficient, although we still have so much to learn, right? So we have a way to, you know, um, understand, you know, time zones when we schedule meetings for team members. We religiously use uh, meeting hours in the calendar to know when people are available. We have a principle of no interrupting focused uh, time, like deep work. So these tools like are very common right now about 
um, you know, I can start a conversation with you with one click and interrupt your deep work. We are totally against that. In fact, we, we are very structured with, with our meetings. We don't have a meeting unless there is an agenda. We don't have a meeting unless the agenda has, uh, you know, the topics to be discussed, the um, notes and action items. We review past action items uh, in, on each following meeting. We don't allow adding new topics unless there was a, a conversation started asynchronously and documented that people have had time to review before the meeting. So the meeting time is used intentionally to discuss issues, not like report progress or just to tell you something that I could have read in, in a meeting. So I think it's always about a balance between, it's not, not a, it's, it's, I think some, sometimes people think that working remotely or working in a flexible way translates into like less productivity, less innovation, less collaboration, but it's the opposite. It's like, because you have those constraints, they force you to have to like use your time in a much more, you know, organized way, in a, in a wiser way. And a lot of that is reflected in, in our culture that again, comes from a lot, uh, the way that, that GitLab works as well. Yeah, I would like to say, well, we, we're similar company in this regard. We're an office-less company and our team is fully distributed. We've never had a, a, an office. And we tend to say that, you know, FYI meetings, purely informational meetings, we don't do them. We just do meetings when we need to discuss stuff. And we need, you know, productive and creative interaction between people to generate debate, right? But, uh, but obviously, a company, if you, the more you're aligned with business, you are forced, to, especially as a service company in our case, we tend to be more synchronous than asynchronous, although we know async is the way using Basecamp or kind of principles you said, but I don't know how that translates into the educational world, right? When everything is built, is ingrained to be something synchronous, you know, the, the, the kind you, you've got a lesson, so the teacher teaches the lesson, but maybe you've reverted that and or you flipped it and now you can consume it at any time you want. So what would you say, what's the split between sync and async in your case? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And again, it looks very different in this case in the school as uh, compared to like the company. And you know, there are good reasons for that. So let's uh, let's see where we start. Hmm. We we are a very weird school. We are we are truly reinventing education. We you know took down all the ideas that we um, you know thought about education from our, our own experiences, from our parents' uh, experience like in, in the education world, and we tried to reinvent everything from scratch. Because we started from some important constraints that I talked about before. We want to get to every country in the world because we believe that you know, 94% of the world's uh, population doesn't have access to college. When I look at this pandemic, I look at you know, the possibility of curing cancer, space exploration, you name it, all those challenges will be will need like every talented person in the world, like you know, investing in solving those issues. So, looking at the world's population, where like more than ninety percent of the people don't have the opportunity to contribute to that kind of work, to me, it blows my mind. So, by design, I wanted to design something that could get to every uh, place, every corner of the world. On the other hand, when I started looking into, okay, how do we build an education system like that? I realized that all the innovation we have seen in the education world over the last like 10 years in, in, in the online like digital world has been around content. And we have some of the best teachers, some of the best, you know, MOOCs, like online courses available for free or very cheaply. We have teachers from Stanford and MIT that you can watch their lectures for free. But saying that content or great content equals great education, it's like saying that, you know, don't send your kids to school because you can just buy the books and they can learn by themselves from the house. We know that at a great education, like content, it's, it's, it's a component of it, but it's not enough. When you think about a great education, it's the network, it's the place that encourages you to show up, it's the peers that are not just your network, but also the people that gives you accountability, the people that gives you support, that make this really intense experience of learning uh, something normal because they're showing up. I show up and we have, you know, group projects and then we have deadlines and we support each other in the process. So having also teachers there, there are a lot of things that are missing in online education. So I tried to think about how can we make, how can we combine the best of both worlds? How can we create, get to the accessibility and scalability of online education with all the supports and the accountability 
that traditional education has. So we started with making the program uh, available at no upfront cost. This is something very unique about us. We offer an, an income share agreement where students only pay a percentage of their salary once they have graduated, only if they got a job working as a developers, and only if they were if they make above a certain threshold. And until the school has got that as well, right? So who got it? Yes, the, the the difference is that we offer this in every single country of the world. There is no uh -huh. other school that offers this. Okay. Uh, we we never we are open to every country. We have never rejected anyone based on which country they come from. So yeah. we have the the process created so it works for for for, for every country. Now, the the key for us and, and our bet is that the 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 way to bring all that um, support and accountability to the education the education world in a scalable way, and this is where my development background comes in is. In order to make that scalable, that cannot depend on having people that you need to hire that needs to be there for that to happen. So you cannot depend on having teachers holding students accountable and you know taking attendance and um, you know lecturing students. You have to flip that. So the content is available for free more often than not. In fact, the problem we have right now is that there is way too much content, not that there is not content enough. So what we do is we curate existing content, existing le lessons, lectures, and we build projects around that. So when students join, they don't have to attend to lectures like in most like boot camps or, or schools. They have projects that they have to build. They have teams that they're part of like in any company, and they learn in the same way that they're going to be learning for the rest of their lives. Because when they get to a company, right? <laughs> exactly. You, 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 you learn by building things. You learn by talking to your coworkers. You learn through co-reviews where you get feedback. You learn by talking to your managers, by talking to more senior people. Right. Sure, you continue taking courses. You look at documentation, Stack Overflow, Google. So we mimic um, all of that. But all of this sits on a very important piece, which is collaborative learning. Our students learn through collaboration. What I mean is this, students join the day every single day at the same time, which is, you know, depending on which time zone you join, it can be UTC minus six or UTC plus one. And in what if they, they will start at 8 a.m. In, in those time zones. But if they're in Brazil, they might start at, you know, if they're in the UTC minus, minus six, they might start at 12 p.m. If they're in Colombia, they will start at, at 8 a.m. So the, the thing is, they join and they join a call with their stand-up teams. They work on some mob programming. They present some code that they have been working on. Then they split in teams of two. They work through pair programming. We got a lot of this from, from Pivotal Labs in, in the US. And right. they have to submit code reviews. Uh, they have to submit their, their pull request to get a, a code review from more senior students. And they're, sometimes I've seen students getting up to eight uh, code reviews before they got a thumbs up to move to the next project. Right. And at the end of the day, they have a stand-up uh, call with their with their team. They talk about their progress of the day, their goals for tomorrow, roadblockers. Every Friday, they have retrospectives. They talk about you know things that they can do better, things that they need to continue doing. They help each other. So at the end, all the accountability comes from these people who are your network because you know that they depend on you to make progress every day. So that is a great incentive for people to show up on time. And we add software on top of this. So we have integrations with the GitHub API, with the Zoom API. We know if students join on time, if they participate, if they uh, participate for long enough, if when they're coding, if they're actually doing pair programming, if they're giving each other the possibility of writing equal levels of, you know, making equal levels of contributions to the code base. And all of this is what's incredibly unique about Microverse because it's you a real experience, right? Because as opposed to, I'm, I don't want to say names, but like what I've seen in other boot camps, it's more like university where you get taught a lot of things, you get exposed to a lot of content and research and whatever, and then you enter the real world. It's like, wow, this is totally not what I've done in the in my education, right? Exactly. So, okay. Yeah, that's a great way. And, and 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 then the other consequence of this is that because you're spending six, seven, eight hours a day with people who are not just people, right? And always collaboration, it's hard. It's people who are so different to you. We have students where in, in the same team, we have a person from Nigeria, a person from Trinidad and Tobago, a person from Peru, and a person from Brazil working together in English. The cultural exchange, it's, it's incredible 
but it's also very challenging. And we always tell them that it is in these challenging moments of you know um, making compromises, uh, letting go, making decisions, argumenting, not just with someone who thinks different to you, but someone that comes from a very different background, maybe different religion, different accent. It is in those moments that we're actually investing 80% of the learning time, not on teaching them how to code, but on teaching them how to become uh, global citizens and global professionals, which we think is much more impactful than any language, a programming language that we can teach. I actually, one of the things I really liked and it caught my attention, it kind of like resonated with the way I think is, Microverse is distributing opportunities around the world with remote jobs because talent is distrib- evenly distributed. The opportunities are not, which is great because it's true. Most of the business guys going into dev boot camps, they are like, I'll build my boot camp in Barcelona and then I'll expand to Berlin and then London and Paris. And you can pick to which city they're going to move next because it's actually cities where actually this problem is already solved, but they wouldn't go to you know, rural areas or remote jobs. And most of them, they don't even care about remote jobs. They might have to get this as a byproduct, right? So in a sense, I like this. However, I find it like, maybe I'm, I'm raising like a, a difficult question here. But it's actually one of the things that, that most of these bootcamps, if not all of them, require that you have full availability for them, right? What are the chances that somebody from a, let's say, less wealthy background can stay without a job between six or three months and a year, right? It's very, very perpetuating the systemic problem of lower backgrounds, lower class backgrounds. They cannot get into this because they cannot afford to be that long without a job, right? How do you solve this? Is this something you encounter? Every single day. And the way we approach this, I, I use the analogy of the onion uh, for everything, but it, it, you know, again, it's an, it's an onion with layers. So the moment you stop requiring people to make an expensive upfront payment, well, you're removing one of the layers of the onion and you are making it more accessible to, to, to more people, right? Let's say we Nigeria, right? Before they maybe had to pay something equivalent to like, let's say something $1,000, okay? Whereas yeah. the same bootcamp in Spain might be $6,000 and in the US it might be $15,000. Well, compared to like their you know, their, their cost of living and their, their income, well, they are equivalent, right? But they still had to invest upfront $1,000, which for most people, that was not an option. Now, by introducing ISAs, we remove that layer. We still require people to have great English level to join the school. We yeah. still require them to have full-time availability. They need a stable internet connection. They need a stable power supply. It is shocking and and... And at the same time, it's like an awakening in, in many ways to, to understand how privileged we are by being able to give for granted a stable internet connection or power supply. We are almost every day talking to people in Venezuela who right now can't join because they cannot even count on having electricity the entire day. So what we are doing about this is we, are, we started last year and this, again, we, when, we, when we think about microverse, we're thinking, 20 years down the road uh, in terms of our vision and our strategy. But these are things that we're experimenting with um, from, from day one. We started doing living stipends. So we have a way by which students and, and applicants can apply to actually get paid to join the school. So if before they couldn't afford because they still had to pay for rent or food, now we pay for their rent and for their internet connection and for their food. And they only have to pay that back if they get a job making more than you know, uh, a given amount every month until they get, they get to a limit and only if they work as a developer and if at any point they get fired or they decide to like leave their jobs, like to, to change jobs, they, they stop paying. We help them again, get a, a job. We have uh, coaches in, in the school. This is probably one of the least scalable parts of, of the school, but it's one of the most impactful ones. We have former developers from, from Amazon, from Google, from PayPal, from Yahoo, who work full-time to coach students on you know, preparing their resumes and portfolio, helping students negotiate their job offers, coaching them not just to get their first job, their second job, their third job. We actually offer our coaching services and all our network of hiring partners for the rest of the life of the student, even after they finish paying the income share agreement. So these stipends that we, we, we give students to, to, to be able to afford joining the school are uh, one experiment in this direction. Because the way it works is 
when they pay back uh, the program, if they didn't get a stipend, they will pay back a certain amount. If they, get a, if they got a stipend, they pay a little bit more. And when they pay back, now we use that amount to be able to provide a stipend to new people joining the program. And it's a self-sustainable uh, model where the idea is that at some point, hopefully in a few years, no matter where you come from, which country you come from, if you get accepted to the school, you can get um, a stipend, no, no, no questions asked. The only thing we're gonna ask from you is that you stay committed to, to the program, which that's a separate conversation, what we mean by committed to the program. I like, I like one point that you raised here. You probably most people will have overheard it, but it's that doesn't scale, but it's meaningful. And that's something you will not hear very often in the startup community was like, doesn't scale, fuck it, right? Because all we care is about metrics, KPIs, goals, you know, OKRs and all of that. So I really like that small nuance over there, but uh, is that something you take into account when you scale a company? When you look at the business size, like, wow, this is expensive, but I'm going to continue doing this because it's, you know, it's our values or is that something you work and then Definitely. We, so one of our values is that we invest in people, right? And for sure, that shows up on, on our investment on the students. But we also apply that to partners, to, to each other as, as team members. And we, we have a very strong um, emphasis on scalability. It, it comes from my engineering background, and I, and I applied like, a scalability to everything. In fact, that's why we use uh, collaborative learning as a way to uh, reduce the cost per student. So precisely, we can take a risk of investing in education of people that no one else can do because it's too risky, right? But we always say it's a human touch first, and then it's a scalable approach. So it's got to feel human. The question is whether in order for it to be human, it's got to be something that it's not a scalable. And that's often not the case. For example, our co-review process, our mentorship process, our stand-up teams, the pair programming, all of that scales even better the more students we have because it's, it's, it's self-regulated by students and it's students helping stu uh, each other, right? Mm -hmm. There are parts like uh, the, the career coaching where, as I said before, it's the least scalable part. But when you have a, a mindset of scalability with this, like the strong human touch, there are there's just so much that you can do to make it scalable, even though it's less scalable. For example, well, you don't hire everyone as full time members in that team. You have coaches as freelancers uh, on top of your full time team. So these freelancers, you can scale them up and down more easily. Every time you have a coach working with students, you create a very strong and uh, quick feedback loop between the coaches and the you know, product managers and the people working in curriculum. So every insight that comes from a conversation with students makes it into an FAQ, a macro for the support team, an automation, a, curriculum, a part of the curriculum. So next time someone might have had the same issue, you already anticipated that in a more scalable way by making it part of the program. And one of the things about well, actually scale was going to be even my, my next topic, because one of the things I, I am of the belief that education doesn't really scale, right? Or the uh, quality-based education doesn't really scale. Once you hit scale, you start corrupting the program by, you know, making it more standardized, it's more paperwork. Maybe you raise the application process uh, levels, or maybe, you know, one of the things that I've seen also is a lot of the that, that bootcamps, they start with really good teachers. But then as they progress, the teachers become disincentivized to continue with the program. And it's former students teaching students, which in turn, they haven't had like real programming jobs, right? So they turn into this recycling hamster wheel of students teaching students. But I don't know, that really is cringeworthy in my, case, uh, in my opinion. But it seems like you don't have this problem. One of the other things that are systemic problems in this, in this industry, I believe you will not have because you work on a global scale, right? But most of these boot camps, they start producing tons and tons of developers for a city. Once the city becomes saturated, if everybody gets the same educational level, it dilutes, right? So it's not value anymore. There's not a network of value of this because everybody gets the same. Therefore, companies who were in necessity, now they get too many applicants and therefore they can be more, you know, they can raise the standards again. So I think... Maybe that doesn't apply to you because you work in a global scale. So do you think like by working remotely, you're kind of exempt of this problematic at all? And that's it. Like when, uh, when you have, it's the same thing as if you're hiring remotely, right? When you hire remotely and you can hire in every country of the world, like GitLab does or like, like we do, yeah. 
you can find the best talent, the best people uh, in each one of those countries. So you don't have to compete often by the very you know, limited supply of local talent in just one city. Yeah. So the same thing that happens there happens with students. By being open to every single country in the world, we can afford getting to like the most talented people in every country. So we know that those people will always have like really good outcomes. What, you know, we always use the analogy of the diamond in the rough. These people, we know they have so much potential because they are at a world-class level when it comes to like their intelligence and like their soft skills. All they need is an opportunity to be able to, like, to develop that, that potential, right? And the potential doesn't just come from great education or from, you know, technical training. It also comes from, you know, soft skills training, but also from a mindset. If these people are not even aware of the international opportunities, if, you know, uh, as developers, every single student struggles with imposter syndrome, if they don't kind of, if they can't overcome that syndrome, there is no way that they can access, you know, um, international remote opportunities. So that's a big part of the, of the training that we have to do. But once you can do that, which by the way, it's really hard to do that at scale in every country in the world at the same time, then you have, you know, a really, really good chances that those people will get really good outcomes. In fact, um, the, the metric that, that we, one of the KPIs that we look at in terms of outcomes is that uh, the percentage of students that get a job within 12 weeks uh, since graduation, and we have an 88% placement in, 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 in 12 weeks. So um, and that, that's something that we are really happy with. And the great thing about the ISA model is that unless those students are getting to good jobs and keeping those jobs and growing into those jobs, you don't get paid. So if we grow too fast, if the quality of the education is not good enough, those people don't get jobs, they don't pay us back, and we have to shut down the school. Mm -hmm. So it is amazing. Yeah, you're incentivized. Exactly. It's amazing how that aligns incentives and how that shapes the culture of how the company operates. How about the technologies? Why did you pick? Uh, you seem to be very vocal about using Ruby on Rails and JavaScript, more, more precisely React in this case. Why this tech stack? By the way, I'll give you first the short answer that I give every student when they ask this. is like, it doesn't matter. Just pick yeah. something, stick to it, and get really good at one thing, right? Like, even if you decide to go for some old school thing, like, let's say, Fortran, yeah. there's usually a correlation between the number of jobs and the number of people who will opt to learn that. So you, you don't need to get every job. You need to get one job that you like, right? So we yeah. always say, if you have to choose between 10 languages that you know more or less, or one that you know really, really well, just opt for one and go in depth with that language. Yeah. Then there's a lot of stuff that you can apply to anything else that you learn. Why uh, Ruby, Ruby Rails, JavaScript, React, and Redux? Well, one side of this is the, is the industry. So JavaScript, React, Redux, it's, it's in high demand. And you know, it's, it's a great tool for them to have on their belt. But uh, the Ruby and the Ruby on Rails side, it's, uh, it's a little more complex and nuanced to, to understand. Ruby, it's a great um, foundational language for, for students like to learn best practices yeah. of software engineering that are applicable to any programming language. In fact, when they get to JavaScript, they get to compare the way you know, object-oriented programming is, you know, is seen in both places, and they get to see the pros and cons. And they, more often than not, they have opinions, and they write articles about that. Yeah. But Right. Ruby, combined with Ruby and Rails, it gets pretty interesting because as, as, as you know very well, um, Rails allows you to prototype and build things really fast. And who are the companies that need to work really fast? Startups. And startups are often the companies that cannot afford to compete for the local talent in these like main uh, tech hubs in the world. So those are the companies who are more incentivized to hire remotely. And because they are new, they don't have a culture in place yet. So they are much more likely to start remote from day one than companies that are more established that have to transition to remote. So when you look at the, the, the market intersection of remote and, uh, and, you know, and uh, you know, which languages remote companies use, Ruby on Rails, it's very, very, very interesting in that way. Also, because perhaps it's the foundation or like the, the coupling of Rails and Basecamp, most, if not a lot of Rails companies are very friendly towards hiring remotely, right? Now, there's one, one sm small thing I disagree with. I, I think that you mentioned something with, about, you know, learning a language and mastering, and I believe that specialization is for ants. Uh, I think precisely one of the things I really don't like about most development bootcamps is like they, they teach people 
to learn a programming language, but not programming, right? Uh, you've got two. Therefore, people are able to compare, but most development bootcamps, they only have... I'm sorry, I'm always comparing to most development bootcamps. Oh, I want people to know the differences, right? And, and you're teaching them two programming languages. Therefore, they are able to extrapolate one idea from a programming language to the other. They can compare. They can have an opinion. But we're seeing a lot in people we're trying to hire, and they're like, no, I am a front-end view JS developer. Yeah. And they only do that. And I don't know, maybe I'm old school. Maybe I'm a boomer in this. But I think I'm, I've got a strong opinion that perhaps because I've learned four, five, six, seven different languages throughout my career, I think I'm a much more complete person because I can, I can tackle different situations, different kinds of companies, different scales, different sectors, and even go into a company, I don't know whose tech stack it is, and just work. Maybe I'm, I will not be productive from day one, but I will learn faster than somebody yeah. in one language. So did you have that in, into, into account when you created the, the program? Yeah. And, and, because you were using these technologies. No, 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 no. We, we were actually not. We, actually, I think the first, well, by the way, this is, again, a topic for a different conversation, but we built the entire school for the first year and a half without writing a single line of code. It was like, I am, even though I'm a developer, uh, because I've also worked as a product manager and entrepreneur for 10 years, I know that the cost, sorry? You were spinning many plates basically as an entrepreneur. You know, well, no, not only that, I know that the cost of writing code is not the cost of writing it, it's also the cost of maintaining it. So if I want to move really fast and make changes really fast, then making changes with no code tools it's way faster than with you know something where you need a developer to make changes. So the entire thing is, is has been built using you know Zoom for video conferencing, Airtable for the backend, and uh, uh, iPhone for forms and Airtable forms for forms, uh, Integromat and Zapier to connecting all the pieces. And um, now anyway, the, the the reason I say this is because we actually the first thing we ever built for the school with code was actually with Node.js. So yeah, no correlation at all with the programming languages we teach and what we use to build things. Now, I, I agree with you on that. I, I guess I was talking from, um, from the point of view of someone who is just starting, right? Someone who has a year, as you said, a year of savings to make a transition in their lives. I think that has to come with a balance of two things. One is a focus on fundamentals. You know, you cannot just learn React. You have to understand why React became to be a thing and when using React makes sense and when it doesn't make sense and what are like the, the principles behind React that are actually applicable in, in a lot of other places or in, with a lot of other tools. But at the same time, if you only have a year to learn something, there's this very common phenomenon of people where they start learning Node.js because they see an article on that and then they get distracted, they don't finish the course. And once they were about to go back to Node.js, there is a new article telling them that the future is machine learning and they should be learning Python for that, not Node.js. So now they switch to Python. And the problem is that in a year, you cannot get to a lot of depth in five, six, seven things at the same time. There's depth that comes from the actual experience, from building like large projects, from having like real users. So in that sense is when we say, hey, just choose one or two things and make sure that you go really, really deep, but really, really deep, not just an understanding and like memorizing you know, the, the, the documentation, but an understanding the principles that actually are applicable to a lot of other languages. And for sure, if you get to experience like not just one, but two languages in a focused way, you're going you're gonna to start to see what are the things they have in common, those are the fundamentals, and what are the things that are better about one compared to the other and, and, and vice versa. So then you get to see that, you know, not um, every programming language can be used for the same situation. And it's interesting you mentioned something I didn't want to cover today, but because I didn't know, but no code. That seems to be all the rates right now. Uh, a lot of strong opinions on no code. Um, so how was your experience? Because it seems to be like very good for prototyping, but then once you hit scale, things break or, well, I don't know, you want, might want to reduce dependencies on third-party software. How was your experience about scaling it? Did you remove it partially, gradually? How was... Uh, absolutely. We, we continue using a lot of like no code and no code or, like, or third-party tools to, to build and to prototype. But yeah. for example, with Airtable, Airtable on their you know, non-enterprise plan, it has a limit of 50,000 records per base. Yeah. And we have you know, outgrown that number a long time ago. But the first thing we did is we didn't replace Airtable. We actually did sharding of the data 
between multiple bases because the limit is per base, and we use Integromat to move data from one place to another. Right. So with that, we, we got to scale our table to 150,000 records, but recently we, we, we hit the limits again. So now um, the transition has been not, not easy, I have to say, and you know, this is the price you pay to be able to move really, really fast at the beginning. So we recently added like an ETL in the middle, so we are able to like, you know, combine all the data sources, normalize them, put them into a single data source, because at one point, we collect around like 120 data points per student per day. Uh, we collect a lot of data. I, we call this our telescope. We say that because we are not in the same classroom, we still, we, we cannot afford not being, able, not being able to know what's, what, what's going on when they're happy, when they're motivated, when they are stuck, when they are having collaboration issues, financial issues. So we collect data on this every single day. Hmm. And in order to create this telescope, we needed all the data to be in a single data warehouse. So uh, it, that was the challenge to combine. We had data in a million different bases. We had some actual databases, some Postgres databases. We have some data that was in Typeform, some data that was in, um, in, in Pathrite, which is a learning management system. We see it's like a, a lot of different places actually. And you know, this, this has been a, a challenge of scaling this. So if, by the way, if anyone um, is in this process, I will say go with a no-code approach, but try to get ahead of the game, understanding when you will hit the limits. And I'm happy to help anyone who is listening uh, to, to this if they need help on, okay, how will the, what will the transition look like when we get there? Um, yeah, funnily enough, when you were mentioning this, I remember the, that Typeform recently downgraded the free users to have like a really limited amount of responses per Typeform, which is kind of like sucks. I mean, I can understand. You're making money with this. I want to make money. Uh, with uh, with your company as well, right? But on the other hand, I think like the, the, the pie of no code is making their pie bigger, right? Because everybody is fucking using air on platform, whatever. So maybe they should have a plan for that. And I was thinking, well, you could, you know, overcome this limitation of type form by having A B tests and each version of the page have a different type form. Therefore you're also sharding here. Uh, it, was, it was really cool. I never thought about, you know, sharding. And, uh, and, but, 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 but you're right that even the tools today are not preparing many of them for this no. trend of no code. Like we, for example, with Typeform, we have one form and we, we are paid users. We pay the, the highest, uh, you know, plan for, with them. Right, and even in that plan, <laughs> we, we, we have 150,000 submissions in one form. Yeah. And the, the Typeform is so, like, we can't even load the data in Typeform at, at this point. We just have to, like, connect it through the ETL layer to be able to even look yeah. at the results uh, right now. But, uh, but yeah, no, it, this, is, this is fascinating. But the things you can do, so um, we're going to be publishing an article on this uh, soon. But we just had to, like, revamp our admissions process, which, by the way, we get around ten to 15,000 um, applications per month, of which we accept. 50 to 80 per month right now. Mm -hmm. So the, the process at the beginning was created with Airtable, Typeform, Intercom, hidden pages, and Integromat connecting some of those steps with emails that we sent to students. Right. The experience was terrible. The, we were hitting the limits on Airtable on Typeform. So we had to migrate to something. And the first reaction was, well, let's build code. It's the time to do that. What we ended up doing was, we created the authentication layer with a member stack, which works really well with Webflow. Again, Webflow, no code tool, right. member stack, no code tool, pretty cheap also. With this, we had authentication. We connected member stack with Integromat to an actual Postgres database. So every time a user signs uh, uh, up or signs in, we actually can save that in a real relational database. And then when a user has to move to the next page, what happens is if you click on a button, you know, when you submit a form, the form takes you to a webhook on Integromat. Integromat, based on the URL of the form, based on a hidden field, will grab your user from the Postgres database. Right, and yeah. based on that, we'll know to which page it has to go next. It takes us like half the time or less that it would have taken us to build this with code. But here's the difference. If I want to iterate on this now, Anyone in the company can do it because they don't need to, to know how to code to, to make any change. Right. And you're turning it gradually into a less code or a small code. Exactly. And naming. Last question to wrap this up, because time is flying and we're about to hit the, the, the limit, is, um, is what's your biggest tech fuck up? Like, 
something technical, you fucked up so badly that you lost a lot of money. Because we're trying to make fuck ups more accessible, more acceptable, right? It's like right, right, right. stigma in this world. But you know, everybody has wiped out a production database. So what's your biggest tech fuck up here that you want to share? Something, you know, funny story or Almost every single blunder, we call them blunder and we share them every week and we share lessons learned from each blunder. But I think every single blunder that I can think of right now has to do with uh, emails. It's like about sending emails to the wrong people or to too many people and that ended up costing us a lot of money because we have hundreds of thousands of people in the, in the database. All right. um, but you know, it's uh, with tools like uh, customer.io, another, I guess, no-code tool that, that we use uh, a lot in our stack. And, uh, you know, when you don't have the right uh, filters and attributes in place, you might end up screwing up there. All right. But can you share something more specific? Is it like we sent oh, a code to discount like 50% to people who had already paid or something like that? Uh, we, it, it's, it's, it's never been something that was like really, 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 really bad. It was sending an email saying, well, um, Hey, congratulations. You have been accepted to the program to people that have been accepted like months. Some of them had already finished the program. So not, nothing, nothing, nothing really, really that bad. You know, financially speaking, I think some of the biggest wonders come from, uh, you know, outgrowing some of these like no code tools. For example, uh, intercom is one where it's very easy to get started with intercom with like the startup plan. It's like free or very cheap. But then after the year, they hit you with the actual pricing and oh my gosh, I remember we yeah. went from paying zero to having to pay $3,000 a month. And at that stage in the company, we couldn't pay for that. So we actually had to like in three days come up with a transition to move outside of, of, of intercom to something else. Um, the same has happened with, with Airtable recently where the enterprise plan right now, it's $36,000 a month and we're not going to be paying that. <laughs> All right. Great experiences. Thank you for sharing all of these. Thank you for being part of the Thank podcast. You. I think we can wrap it up here. See you all on the next podcast. We are Mars-based, an all-remote consultancy from Barcelona, specializing in web and mobile development. We help all kinds of companies, from startups to big corporations, to conceptualize, design, and develop solutions for their business using technology. And now... How can we help you?